Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Hello, welcome back. We are in Chapter 12 of Lost in Transnation. A Child Psychiatrist Guide Out of the Madness, Dr. Miriam Grossman, MD. Chapter 12 is titled, Surgeon's Dangerous Idea. So this is where we throw the surgeons under the bus. And I promise this one's a rough one. It's rough to hear. Um, it's, it's, it's gonna be a handful, so hang on. Um, and this is how it starts. How do you make a vagina? Asks Jake. He has one, or asks Jake, he has one. Actually, he used to have one. The surgeon constructed it from his penis and scrotum. Six months later, Jake realized he's a man um, and can never be a woman with a bona fide vagina, so he stopped the upkeep of his faux vagina and it pretty much closed up. Now Jake has neither a penis nor a vagina, but he will need to inject testosterone into his thigh every week for the rest of his life. The gender-affirming industry projected to rake in $1.5 billion by 2026 has recruited another lifelong patient. Before his first appointment, Jake from Hawaii completed my office forms. For the medical history portion, where patients typically list their allergies and appendectomies, he wrote three words, I am mutilated. They sliced my penis and made a vagina with it, Jake told me. I had doubts that morning. I wondered, is this the answer? Is this what I need? I thought of canceling the operation, but they said, you're going to be okay. Surgeons re refer to gender-affirming procedures such as vaginoplasties and phalloplasties as genital reconstruction. Again, in order to affirm, they must deny biology rea biological reality, and there's no reconstructing anything. Jake never had female genitalia, and the surgeons can only attempt using primitive procedures to mimic the real thing. I acknowledge from the outset these surgeries may have may help some people, but we lack robust long-term evidence that they are a majority. And there's no way to identify those people pre-op with any degree of certainty. There is no long-term follow-up whatsoever of surgeries performed on young people with ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria. So it's important for you to know the details of Jake's affirming surgery, as well as those performed on young women. One day, it, it could be your child who believes, like he did, that their emotional struggles will be cured in a few hours on an operating table. I want him or her to avoid a catastrophe. Brace yourselves. What's ahead is dreadful. In the months leading up to Jake's surgery, his pubic hair was eliminated by electrolysis. On the operating table, his testicles were removed and its scrotal skin fashioned into labia. His penis was flayed inverted, and used to create a vaginal vault. Some use the term neo-vagina for this structure. I prefer faux-vagina because neo means new or modified, and what Jake's surgeon constructed was neither a new or modified vagina. It's something altogether different. Trust me. Back to the OR. 
The sensitive nerves and tissue from the tip of Jake's penis become a clitoris. His urethra, the tube through which he eliminates urine, was shortened and relocated. Jake was 20 years old when he climbed on the operating table. But for a boy whose puberty was blocked at a young age, such as Jazz Jennings, a vaginoplasty is much more complicated. As explained, the penis will remain child-sized, micropenis, because it was never exposed to the testosterone surge of puberty. There will be insufficient tissue to create a faux vagina, and the surgeons will have to harvest it from elsewhere. This gets extremely complicated. Jazz needed to go under the knife three additional times following the original surgery. The body does not recognize a faux vagina. Instead, it perceives it as an open wound. The body's natural reactions to a wound is to close it. Therefore, patients who have vaginoplasties must conscientiously dilate the new structure, a tedious process, so it remains patent or open. One patient described it this way on Twitter. Having a vagina is super hard. Dilations? Awful. Why do I have to feel that my anus is about to disintegrate? Why does the labia have to burn so much every time I dilate? And every six blank hours every day. Madness. Absolute madness. I want to cry. And then there's trouble down under the next section here. A major issue following genital surgeries is that urination may be compromised, not for days or weeks, but for months or even years. This is true for vaginoplasties as well as phalloplasties, during which a flap of skin from the forearm is used to create what advocates call a neophallus, but I will call a faux phallus. The surgeon rolls the skin together and attaches it to the groin. It's a complex process that typically requires multiple surgeries, including those for urethral lengthening. Additional procedures, including implants, are needed to be able to have an erection. On TikTok, Ashton shares the struggle of not being able to urinate without a catheter, following surgery to construct a faux phallus. Ashton's experience with urethral failure necessitated a urethroplasty, which involved taking tissue from her inner cheek lining to construct a new urethra. And she said, it's been almost six months since I've had phalloplasty, and the past six months have been an absolute ride, and they have been six of the hardest months that I've ever been through. Normally, a patient would have multiple catheters placed temporarily, but Ashton ended up having a catheter for over seven months until the next surgery to fix a blockage. This person said, I got what's called a stricture or fistula. I need something now called urethroplasty, which means a complete rebuild of the urethra, which means I've been having a suprapubic tube, which is a catheter, in place for about seven months, and they have to change it every month. So I've gotten it changed just about seven times now. It's very uncomfortable when, when you're changing it. Having another 18 months of surgery ahead of me is definitely not something that I really want to do. Skin from the forearm was used to create Ashton's penis, leaving Ashton with numbness due to nerve deconstruction. He says, I did extensive physical therapy trying to see if we could get some feeling back into it, but according to the surgeon, there were nerves that were taken out of the arm, that arm, and I do not have any feeling in it whatsoever. The goal of phalloplasty is to stand to pee. 
but many ultimately cannot pee at all. Quote, it was so amazing to finally be able to stand up and use the bathroom. It was really, really neat. And then I woke up the next day and I went, well, to take my morning pee. And all of a sudden I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm pushing and nothing is coming out. It's absolutely terrifying for all of a sudden a bodily function that has worked your entire life no longer works. I was terrified. Ashton spoke of luckily being able to rely on this suprapubic tube, another backup catheter that remained in case this blockage happened because there's such a big chance of this happening. Ashton warns viewers, when you get bottom surgery for F to M, there is a huge chance, the margins are like 14 to 60 something percent, that this is going to happen to you. It's either called a stricture or fistula. Documenter Exulansic, who studies trans ideology as a group of religious movements threatening our civil and disability rights, keenly observes, quote, so it sounds like this person was told that the risk of this happening would be somewhere between 14% and 69%. How is anyone supposed to make a reasonable decision based on these uh, those odds? Unfortunately for Ashton, prolonged use of a catheter has not surprisingly led to more complications. He said, I have been fighting off infection after infection. My body doesn't like it. One of the few long-term studies examining or examined the urological complications of trans surgery up to six years. They found that almost three quarters of patients cited feeling intermediately um, the too, too strongly bothered by the bladder symptoms. These issues included overactive bladder, stress urinary, urinary incontinence, a reduced in urinary flow, and metal stenosis. In English, that means feeling like you need to urinate all the time, incontinence, a weak stream, and a narrowed opening. These debilitating complications can last for years. Remember, we are speaking of men and women who had perfectly normal plumbing prior to surgery. They weren't running to urinate every 15 minutes. They weren't leaking. As healthy young people, they did their business and forgot about it. Were they, were they counseled about the risks of surgeries? More than a few say that they were not. Richie, another D-trans man who had vaginoplasty, described his post-surgery torment on, in a Twitter thread. No one told me any of what I'm going to tell you now. No one told me that the base area of your penis is left. It can't be removed, meaning you're left with a literal stump instead of that twitches, inside that twitches. I have no sensation in my crotch region at all. Then there's the act of going to the toilet. It takes me about 10 minutes to empty my bladder. It's extremely slow, painful, and because it dribbles, no matter how much I relax, it will, it will then just go all over that entire area, leaving me soaked. So after cleaning myself up, I will find moments later that my underwear is wet, no matter how much I wiped. It slowly drips out for the best part of an hour. I never knew at 35, I ran the risk of smelling like piss everywhere I went. Heartbreaking. As simple as chewing gum. I want the reader to remember that Jake, Ashton, and Richie's pain and suffering were 100% avoidable. But they fell prey to the zealous affirmation of the gender medical establishment. My patient Jake told me, I was abused by my baseball coach. That's why I had dysphoria. It was the sexual trauma. I couldn't look at my genitals. I had tried to kill myself a few times. I was diagnosed with bipolar and hospitalized twice. I overdosed twice and tried to drown in a lake near my house. I was confused and I fell victim to the gender thing. The clinic pushed it on me over and over that I am trans. The therapist asked, why haven't you changed your name yet? He pushed transition and I was 
put in the express lane. They put me on a on estrogen and spironolactone. They didn't look at my mental health history. It was rushed. I only met with the surgeon once for maybe 20 minutes. I was not in a stable place of mind. I was on three psych meds. They said it would improve my mental health. I trusted them. Jake thought he had found a solution to his suffering. He trusted his physicians and his social worker and signed on the dotted line. Now his life trajectory has been irrevocably altered. He continues, I, I have UTIs frequently. I see dark clots when I use the bathroom. I've been gravely wronged. I wish I could go back in time and undo it. I lost my manhood. I can't be a father. I told them several times I want that. They didn't speak with me about sperm preservation. Where do I go from here? How do I move forward? Beyond mutilation of his genitals and urinary incontinence, Jake suffers from frequent pain, infection, bleeding, and concerns about his sexual function. Jake's complaints are not unusual. He has lots of company. At one post-vaginoplasty clinic, over half of the patients reported pain, over a third had sexual function concerns, and 42% were experiencing vaginal bleeding. Why the frequent infections? They're due to hair growing in Jake's faux vagina. Wait, what? Well, in spite of Jake's many painful electrolysis sessions, so painful he required local anesthesia, some follicles may have persisted and they grew hair in their new location. Not good. The presence of hair can lead to infection, pus, and a putrid odor. As you might imagine, it's very hard to permanently remove hair growing deep inside the faux vagina. At 42 years old, Scott Nugent has been in hell and, to hell and back following her uh, phalloplasty. Her mission now is to protect children from the gender industry, and she writes, I endured medical complication after medical complication. I lost everything I'd ever worked for, home, car, savings, career, wife, medical insurance, and most importantly, my faith in myself and God. In a battle to survive, I went from ER to ER trying to solve a mystery of why my health was failing. I learned firsthand the truth about how dangerous and perilous medical transition really is. I learned the hard way that if you get sick because of transgender health, you will witness physicians throwing their hands up and saying one of two things. One, transgender health is experimental and I don't know what's wrong. Or two, you need to go back to the physicians who hurt you in the first place. My medical complications have included seven surgeries, a pulmonary embolism, an induced stress heart attack, sepsis, a 17-month recurring infection, 16 rounds of antibiotics, three weeks of daily IV antibiotics, arm reconstructive surgery, lung, heart, and bladder damage, insomnia, hallucinations, PTSD, $1 million in medical expenses, and loss of home, car, career, and marriage. All this, and yet I cannot sue the surgeon responsible in part because there is no structured, tested, or widely accepted baseline for transgender health care. In order to empower the transgender-identifying patient, gender-affirming care eliminates gatekeeping. Patients are left with a rosy depiction of the outcomes of these primitive surgeries. Scott, right, Scott continues to write here. When you start to medically transition, you are told a Disney version akin to watching toddlers skip through the daisies. Imagine watching the sunset and leaning back against a tree and sipping iced tea. This is the image that was painted for me. At 42, even I wasn't able to decipher 
what the complications were as the medical and mental health industry made transitions seem as simple as chewing gum. Each time I asked a question, my concerns were skimmed over, making me feel insignificant and childish. Now I was middle-aged and a successful business sales executive. If I was intimidated, children and adolescents don't stand a chance. Take note, everybody. Scott was a successful middle-aged business executive, yet she was intimidated by the gender surgeon. This chapter arms you with facts you need to know should you or someone you love consult with a gender surgeon. You're not insignificant, and your concerns are real. Don't allow them to be dismissed. Shapeshifter, a vocal male-to-female detransitioner whose YouTube channel byline is Survivor of Experimental Transgender Healthcare, has said, The surgeries are not where they should be. They're not as safe as they're sold. I was sold a sex reassignment surgery. I'm still male. I never became female. That's the reality. What do the data say? Remember Ashton, who needed continuous catheterization following phalloplasty? That and other issues are commonplace among recipients of affirming surgeries. Infection. The skin near the incision and the urethra are common areas for infection. Prolonged catheterization is required, increasing one's risk of serious infection. Partial phallic loss. If the faux penis does not maintain adequate blood flow, it cannot survive. Stricture. Inadequate blood flow can cause scar tissue to form. This may slow or block the release of urine. Fistula. An abnormal connection between the urinary tract and a nearby organ, like the bowel or to the body surface. A 2022 phalloplasty systematic review and meta-analysis, a type of study known for its high quality of evidence, of 1,731 patients revealed the following staggering outcomes. An overall complication rate of more than three quarters of patients. Almost a third experienced urethral fistula and a quarter experienced urethral stricture. The authors conclude that the evidence for patients getting the outcomes promised is weak. A large 2022 review of phalloplasty, including 11 studies, found that nearly a third developed a serious complication, namely stricture or fistula. Meanwhile, the medical establishment and the media continue to portray these surgeries as improving the lives of individuals with gender distress. Sexual function was addressed in a crucial follow-up study mentioned previously by the Dutch, the first long-term study we have. Although only male-to-female patients were included, they found that over three-quarters had problems with libido. Slightly more than two-thirds experienced failure to orgasm, and 71% experienced pain during sex. A 2018 survey of those who had undergone male-to-female surgery concluded that the majority experienced orgasms more intensely after surgery, but the response rate was less than half. How can we conclude anything at all when so few responded. One question addressed overall sex life satisfaction and on a scale from zero, very dissatisfied to 10, very satisfied, less than 8% said they were very satisfied. Far from glowing results. Now let's look at another of the very uh, few long-term studies which followed patients for 13 years. The authors conclude that the available studies suffer from many limitations. 
like a lack of control populations, high dropout rates, and very few that describe the surgical outcomes in detail. So in other words, the data supporting phalloplasties and vaginoplasties are low quality. Yet the gender-affirming industry advocates um, advocates their benefits. Surgeons welcome patients like Jake, Ritchie, and Scott with open arms. That is until they complain about the appearance of their genitals or return to the office with appalling complications like feces exiting from the wrong orifice, nerve damage impeding sexual intimacy, chronic bleeding, oozing or infections. You get the picture. While thankfully rare, deaths from the affirming surgeries do occur. The one from the Dutch study discussed earlier was reported in 2016. An 18-year-old thought he was getting a vagina, but in the process was infected with a type of E. coli commonly known as fleshing bacteria. He developed septic shock and organ failure. He was put through this, as I keep reminding you, even though evidence of lasting benefit from the surgery was lacking. His death was 100% avoidable. Shapeshifter describes how when complications emerge, which they inevitably do for over one-third of patients, physicians run the other way. He says, nobody wants to touch other surgeons' work because they don't want to attach their name to a complicated case. Because every time you go in there, there's more scar tissue and more complications. Even worse, the blame is placed on the patient, not the procedure. They don't really, and this is a quote, they don't really tell you that the body treats you treats you as a wound and tries to close up. Yes, constantly trying to close up the neo-vagina. So I got a revision. A few months later, I was back on the table, op operating table, and got blamed at the time that I didn't dilate enough, even though I was religiously dilating. They kept on blaming me for not dilating enough. A patient starts out with one problem, dysphoria, and ends up with a multitude of problems. Unlike gender dysphoria, the new iatrogenic issues could be permanent or require additional surgeries. One example is women's excruciating orgasms following testosterone. Aiden Dowling describes in a YouTube video the Almost Everyday Vlog, episode 6. Quote, It literally feels like someone takes two knives and shoves them into the pelvic region and twists and turns them, and that goes on for about an, anywhere from maybe a minute to six, seven minutes. It's very disruptive to the sexual experience. It makes me kind of, uh, at certain points, feel like I don't necessarily want to engage sexually because it's extremely painful. Like so many complications stemming from affirmative care, the agonizing orgasms were unexpected. And Aiden, who's heard the same complaint from others, wants to publicize the problem. Not only is it incredibly painful, causing her to seek a hysterectomy, which may lead to other medical issues, but it seems the professionals aren't talking about it. Once again, we're in the inform where's the informed consent? Aiden estimated that about eight to 10 women on testosterone are affected by this debilitating issue, and that physicians recommend a hysterectomy, major surgery with possible complications as a solution. Why aren't women warned? Aiden's estimate isn't far off base. In a study of almost 490 patients, 72% reported pelvic cramping following the initiation of testosterone. The authors declare that further research is warranted given the pelvic floor musculature is sensitive to androgens such as testosterone. Duh. Upon being prescribed a hysterectomy to help with the iatrogenic pain patients experience, 
Are they made aware of the additional risk of that procedure, as in bladder injury, urinary tract infections, and overactive bladder? What about the cardiovascular risks? Increased strokes and heart attacks among women undergoing hysterectomy at young ages for benign reasons, i.e. not cancer. It boggles the brain. In a YouTube video, Joey Meza describes iatrogenic bladder issues following a hysterectomy performed years ago. He says, I have issues with my bladder, which I found out was also related to my hysterectomy that I had many years ago because now my bladder dropped. Moving beyond the complications of elective hysterectomies, while these women, or will these women one day regret being able to carry and give birth to a child? Let's, re, uh, let's return to the first long-term follow-up study mentioned previously, which came from the Dutch. Like so many of the gender-affirming research, this study had an unimpressive response rate of fewer than half of participants, which leads to biases and omissions of adverse outcomes. The study found that over half of those surveyed wanted to have kids, a number expected to grow as, as more participants reached their mid to late 30s. At age 12 to 15, none of the subjects wanted to preserve fertility. Wow. This is a travesty, a life-altering reality that can never be undone. Yet, as mentioned in Chapter 5, gender-affirming pediatric endocrinologist Daniel Metzger of British Columbia Children's Hospital casually remarked during a meeting shared on YouTube, quote, Some of the Dutch researchers gave some data about young adults who had transition and reproductive regret. Like, regret and it's there. And I don't think any of that surprises us. Most of the kids are nowhere in any kind of brain space to really, really talk about it in a serious way. That's always bothered me. But you know, we still want the kids to be happy, happier in the moment, right? Oof. Here we have a physician, a professional bound by medical ethical principles, including beneficence and non-maleficence, who is endorsing the notion that making a minor happier in the moment trounces the future devastation caused by sterilization of a minor who cannot fathom the lifelong consequences of, of um, their decisions. Looking at the totality of egregious issues through the wide lens, one can't help but wonder what happened to the Hippocratic Oath taken by the gender-affirming physicians who once promised to do no harm. Ignoring the red flags. What I really needed was therapy, not surgery, Shapeshifter said on TikTok. He's right. He had a history of untreated trauma and abuse, but affirming care told Shapeshifter to align his body with his mind, so he focused on hair and makeup, breasts and vagina. After all, the operations, he's still in emotional pain. But added to it is a laundry list of medical woes. Some look back incredulously is how the medical professionals failed to carefully and holistically examine their histories. Shapeshifter says, I was drinking the Kool-Aid for years and I was convinced that I was an actual woman and I felt like this will help me and help my depression and anxiety. But somehow mental health professionals ignored all the signs and all the other mental health issues I had um, that I just discovered later on. The truth is, it didn't take away any of my issues, and I got even more depressed after the surgery because the surgery is sold incorrectly as something that will solve your issues. Richie said, during transition, I was obsessive and deeply unwell. I cannot believe they were 
allowed to do this to me, even after all the red flags. Shapeshifter and Richie are far from alone in realizing their mental health issues were the driving force behind the, their insatiable desire to transition. A 2022 Reddit r/dtrans demographic survey revealed that 82% of detransitioners realized gender dysphoria was related to other issues, including mental health. Slightly more than 40% of natal females and 32% of natal males in one detransitioner survey endorsed the statement, I discovered that my gender dysphoria was caused by something specific, i.e. trauma, abuse, mental health conditions. With time, many of these individuals find themselves no longer fleeing who they are. When underlying problems aren't addressed, they will resurface sooner or later. As Hakim, distinguished psychiatrist in the unit K, who works with transgender identifying individuals both before and after surgery writes, will such surgery may offer uh, help to some patients? What about the unfortunate patients for whom surgery does not provide a resolution to their serious internal conflict? Dr. Akeem calls sex reassignment surgery, now called gender affirming surgery, mechanical transformations. I like that. For eight years, Dr. Alif Girasik ran a weekly psychotherapy group for dissatisfied post-operative patients. Many felt a great deal of anger and resentment for being allowed to undergo a process that they now regard as, as leaving them mutilated and neither male or, nor female. The group was considered very successful in preventing suicide among these individuals, living helplessly and hopelessly with regret. Although groups such as hers are incredibly rare, the Portman Clinic was a lone player, patients' regret is not rare, despite what uh, we're told. The affirming industry insists that regret is about around 1%. Fortunately, we have experts like Dr. Hakeem, who in 2021 informed us otherwise, he says. The public are often told that relative regret uh, is extremely low, but this is, of course, is a complete fiction. There are no follow-up studies. No one knows what the regret rate actually is, and this, this low rate results from the lack of any information being collected. The patients I saw did not officially exist in any gender identity clinic's books. D'Angelo et al., in a letter to the editor, addressed the research examining regret and says, these studies may understate true regret rates due to overly stringent definitions of regret, i.e. requiring an official application for reversal of the legal gender status. Very high rates of participant loss to follow-up, 22 to 63%, and an unexplored relationship between regret and high rates of post-transition suicide. It's generally accepted that regret may take about 8 to 10 years to manifest. For people like Jake, Ritchie, and Shapeshifter, regret surfaced many or much earlier. Studies that claim regret is extremely low, like so many of the research, research discussed here, are often poorly conducted. They may fail to follow patients long enough or follow an entirely different group of patients, not the current rapid onset juniors for your cohort that is the focus of this book. More from Dr. Hakim. He says, 26% of my patients are post-operative regretters. These people were all non-existent data. No one had followed them up from the gender clinic since they had been given their sex changes. Many of them were too embarrassed to admit that they regretted their decision having persuaded the doctors and psychiatrists and gender clinic to give them what they wanted and felt they needed. 
Many of them were living in a post-operative role, which they now felt to be fraudulent, but from which they felt there was no return. We have no way of knowing how many transitioners live with regret and how many are generally satisfied. Although we don't yet have high-quality research, we do have the 47,300 people who have joined the Reddit thread r slash dtrans. And Lisa Littman's 2020 study that found 76% of respondents did not inform their clinicians. More research on detransitioners is critically needed. WPATH. How in God's name are these atrocities taking place? Simple. The surgeons who carved up Jake, Richie, Shapeshifter, Scott, and others, leaving them infertile and disfigured, can justify their work. How? They provide gender-affirming care. They follow WPATH's standards of care. What is WPATH? Read carefully, parents. You need to know. WPATH is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Sounds impressive, right? Like a group of doctors with stethoscopes and pocket protectors and conducting research, examining evidence, and carefully formulating guidelines for clinicians? Yeah, no. It may once have been, but no longer. WPATH is an NGO formed in 1979. They promote their standards of care, SOC, standards of care, as the model of best practice, the gold standard. Many, if not most, U.S. hospitals, clinics, and private physicians and therapists base their practices on WPATH's SOC, standards of care. How close to a, to a gold standard are they? An independent, peer-reviewed analysis in 2021 gave them a quality score of zero out of six. WPATH presents its approach to patients, parents, and providers as the only valid evidence-based option, yet its recommendations have been formally rejected by Sweden, Finland, Norway, and Britain, and questioned by medical groups in France, Australia, and New Zealand. Although WPATH guidance advises hospitals, clinicians, and even courts, WPATH itself suffers from identity confusion. While presenting as an unbiased science-based medical group, it is in truth an advocacy organization run by activists who have an unwavering goal of affirmation at all costs. Ideology colors its recommendations, which have fallen prey to affirmative bias and rest upon research that's inherently flawed or very low quality. Dr. Marcy, Dr. Marcy Bowers, current president of WPATH, performed Jazz's castration and vaginoplasty. I remember watching the episode of I Am Jazz during which Jazz and parents consult with Dr. Bowers for the first time. Jazz is so excited about getting a vagina. But after examining Jazz, Dr. Bowers explains that as a consequence of the puberty blockers started at age 11, Jazz's penis is very small and there isn't enough tissue to construct a vagina. My heart dropped. Oh no, if only years ago they'd let their, this child be, Jazz would likely now be feminine and perhaps gay, but a boy. Instead, Jazz's physical, emotional, sexual, and cognitive development were chemically interrupted. Jazz is infertile and probably can't orgasm and has been led to believe surgery can create female genitalia. Now Dr. Bowers is saying, what? In the episode, the famous gender surgeon tells Jazz and parents that the solution, the only way to now construct a vagina is to borrow tissue from Jazz's colon. That caught my attention. I want 
to hear, I want to hear this. I may be a psychiatrist, but I remember my histology. And the lining of the colon is altogether different from the lining of the vagina. For one thing, I recall the colon lining has cells that produce mucus to ease the passage of fecal matter. Now, that's not going to be uh, at all like the mucus produced by the cervix or vagina. Forgive me, I don't know what colonic mucus smells like, but okay. So tissue from Jazz's colon was used to help construct a vagina, faux vagina, despite evidence that many of these Frankenstein sigmoid colon-derived vaginas are chronically inflamed, swollen, and sensitive. Not exactly what you want, especially during intercourse. Did Jazz truly understand the hazards ahead? One episode filmed Jazz saying, when I was two years old, I had a dream of the, of the good fairy coming to change my penis into a vagina. And today, that's finally happening. And I feel like, you know, Dr. Marcy Bowers is the good fairy. And now my dream is coming true. But Jazz's dream quickly morphed into a nightmare after complications led to multiple trips to the OR. Jess Ting, a surgeon who joined Dr. Bowers in the operating room, admitted in one clip that this was going to be an unusual surgery. Taking Jazz on as a patient for surgery, we knew it was going to be a one-of-a-kind surgery, Ting explained. We don't even, we don't have the experience of having said we've done 50 of these. I was just not expecting her to have a complication as severe as what she did have. Okay, time out a second. I realized that affirming genital surgeries were developed years ago to help patients with severe dysphoria who begged for relief. The outcomes weren't great, but the point is those patients were middle-aged adults. We are speaking of much younger people here and of more complicated procedures. Jazz, placed on the Gender Transition Expressway at age five, underwent one-of-a-kind surgery at 17. Let me tell you something. When you have an operation, you don't want to be one of a kind. That's the last thing you want. You want, if possible, to be one of millions who had the surgery. You want your surgeon to have performed the procedure hundreds or thousands of times. You surely don't want your surgeon squabbling during the operation about what the next step should be, as happened with Ting and Bowers. Listening to Jake, Ashton, Jazz, and so many others, sometimes it seems these surgeries are yet another example of doctors saying, hey, I have an idea. Let's do this to patients and see what happens. In fact, I just learned that surgeons have a new and improved solution for the micropenis in patients such as Jazz. Construct a vagina using tilapia skin. Yes, the fish. I admit to being impressed by surgeons coming up with a creative solution to vexing surgical dilemmas. Still, I wonder, is there a point at which they say, sorry, we cannot do this? I learned from Michael Biggs' 2022 expose of the Dutch protocol that concerns for patients like Jazz were raised at a conference all the way back in 2005. A 2008 article by the Dutch pioneers recognized the genital tissue available for vaginoplasty may be less than optimal and that more invasive and complicated procedures would be needed. That's exactly what Dr. Browse was talking about in the dis that disturbing episode. Were Jazz and parents made aware of the risk that blockers were started in 2011? 
Or Jazz's medical and surgical interventions, examples of the evidence-based care promised by WPATH's standards of care and its mission statement? How could they be when we do not yet have the evidence for these complicated surgeries in a patient whose puberty was blocked at an early age? As whistleblower Jamie Reed recalls, the doctors of the, at the Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital saying, we are building the plane while we are flying it. Pretty scary. Yet patients and their parents will not realize this upon boarding, nor will they likely come across WPATH's disclaimers that in adults the empirical evidence available is limited and does not include randomized controlled trials or long-term longitudinal research. Pay attention. The disclaimer is just for the adults. There's even less data available for the youngest patients. Don't worry, though. WPATH assures us that longitudinal studies are currently underway. Does this admission that studies are in, the prog in, in progress absolve WPATH? Of course not. We're not crash testing cars here. Let's imagine for a moment that we were. How would you feel if the car you had just purchased came with the following disclaimer? The testing on these brakes, it's limited, and there's no long-term research on their safety. But studies are currently underway. If you're the parent of a boy for whom puberty suppression has been recommended, you need to know that one out of 49 patients who started blockers in early to mid-puberty, 71% lacked sufficient tissue for construction of a vagina and required, like jazz, the grafting of a part of the intestine. Passionate convictions and dangerous intolerance. Dr. Stephen Levine was a member of WPATH for 25 years. He served as the chairman of the International Standards of Care Committee that issued the fifth version of the Standards of Care. Dr. Levine writes in an expert report, the Standards of the Care SOC document is the product of an effort to be balanced, but it is not politically neutral. WPATH aspires to be both a scientific organization and an advocacy group for the transgendered. These aspirations sometimes conflict. The limitations of the Standards of Care, however, are not primarily political. They are caused by the lack of rigorous research in the field, which allow room for passionate convictions on how to care for the transgender. Dr. Levine also comments on WPATH's dangerous intolerance for diversity of thought. WPATH claims to speak for the medical profession. However, it does not welcome skepticism and therefore deviates from the philosophical core of medical science. Skepticism as, as to the benefits of sex reassignment surgery to patients and strong alternative views are not well tolerated in discussions within the organization or other educational outreach programs. Such views have been known to be sh shouted down and effectively silenced by the large numbers of non-professional adults who attend the organization's uh, biannual meetings. Two groups of individuals that I re regularly work with have attended recent and separate WPATH continuing education sessions. Their questions about alternative approaches were quickly dismissed with, there are none. This is how it is done. Such a response does not accurately reflect what is known, what is unknown, and the diversity of clinical approaches in this complex field. Dr. Levine re recounted to me an incident that happened in a 1997 WPATH meeting. He gave a talk on the risks uh, or consequences of public and private cross-dressing and socially presenting oneself as a woman on wives and children. But in the audience 
were middle-aged men dressed as women. Dr. Levine felt pressured not to trigger them into guilt, shame, or rage. It certainly does not encourage a free exchange of ideas. Having these stakeholders in the audience inhibits both the speaker, the speaker's speech, and colleagues' response to the talk. Booing during a presentation is not exactly professional decorum. So I asked Dr. Levine if there was a defining incident that led to his resignation from WPATH following 25 years and after holding several senior positions. And he said yes. In 2001, he was chairman of the eight-member group charged with developing the fifth standards of care. The committee had decided to maintain the SOC4's requirement of two letters of support from mental health providers prior to hormonal treat interventions and another two prior to surgeries. Dr. Levine presented the SOC5 to the executive committee of WPATH that included former WPATH president Richard Green, who was incidentally uh, a colleague of John Money's. When Green saw we recommended two letters from psychotherapists for hormones, Dr. Levine told me he said, no, two letters is too conservative. Treatment must be more accessible. All eight members of the group that came up with these recommendations were in agreement about the two letters. However, Green only wanted one letter. He at once appointed a new committee to write the SOC 6, requiring only one letter for hormones, and later SOC 7 would dispense with a letter altogether, claiming the letters are gatekeeping, which was considered wrong. Dr. Levine resigned. Green's actions were a clear signal to him that WPATH's objectives were no longer recognizable, nor was it ethical. Their goal had become to affirm everyone and eliminate all barriers to care. In an expert report for a case before the Southern District Court of West Virginia, Dr. Levine wrote, I resigned my membership in 2002 due to my regretful conclusion that the organization and its recommendations had become dominated by politics and ideology rather than by scientific process as it was years earlier. All this is troubling considering the lifelong ramifications of the medical interventions WPATH endorses. It claims of consensus, its claims of consensus among professionals couldn't be more misleading. SOC 8, according to the latest 2022 WPATH Standards of Care 8th edition, affirmation is the only solution for gender dysphoria. Health professionals should instruct minors on breast binding and penis tucking. Concerned parents are deemed a threat and former measures of precaution have been denounced. So for WPATH, it's all about patient autonomy, blockers, hormones, and surgeries on demand. Respect for patient autonomy became the primary ethical principle to follow. Until WPATH's SOC 7, counseling was recommended, but according to 8, counseling should never be mandated. Another feature of this latest version is the removal of age restrictions. Indeed, WPATH SOC 8 is the embodiment of the Articles of Faith. So what does this mean for the vulnerable populations needing protection? As my patient Jake stated in disbelief, I thought there was a system in place to evaluate people. There's no system in place. They're just allowing people to self-destruct. There's much more in SOC 8 that you must know about, but I'll focus on the most troubling. Standards of care introduced a new sexual orientation. An individual who is assigned male at birth, AMAB, and wishes to eliminate masculine features, masculine genitals, and genital functioning. I wish it uh, weren't so, but in WPATH's latest SOC, a chapter is 
um, dedicated to eunuchs. Boys and men seeking castration are now under the ever-widening gender non-conforming umbrella. They identify as people without testicles, so castration affirms their identity. No doubt, they too have the right to demand and receive surgery of their choice at any age and with any co-occurring psychiatric ills without the interference of gatekeepers. WPAS 2022 conference kicked off with a keynote from the Admiral said, our task, quite simply, is to educate the public in the United States and throughout the world. We have the power to expand the boundaries of science and of public understanding. Admiral, does expanding the boundary of science and of a public understanding include passing off as normal and good the castration of minors? In response to SOCH's alarming contents, a group called Beyond WPATH started a petition that has over 2,000 signatures as of this writing, it declares as mental health professionals, public health scientists and allied organizations and individuals, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the current standards of care released by WPATH. We hold that WPATH has discredited itself. 119 doctors signed off on SOC 8 advocating for your son's right to autonomy and deciding to have his genitals removed. Next time you hear someone invoke the authority of WPATH, I hope you remember that. Trans is old. Nulo is new. Some affirming surgeons are ready and willing to perform whatever fits a patient's fleeting fancy. Phalloplasty, vaginoplasty, bilateral mastectomies and hysterectomies, castration and eunuch of affirmation surgeries, or even genital nullification, leaving patients with no genitals at all. One affirming surgery clinic's website states, genital nullification, nulo, or eunuch procedures involve removing all external genitalia to create a smooth transition from the abdomen to the groin. In some cases, this involves shortening the urethra. For patients born with a uterus, a hysterectomy is required prior to any genital nullification procedure. Your specific goals can be discussed with one of our surgeons to develop a plan that works for you. And that last line means that if you want a penis and a vagina, that's okay too. Just tell us what you want. We create custom-made genitals. Whew. There have been, there have always been deeply disturbed people in the world. That's nothing new. What is new is this brazenness and our willingness to prescribe what Allison Clayton calls dangerous medicine to satisfy their appetites. So understand this. Once the gender ideologues achieve one goal, without hesitation, they move to the next. Now the monstrous bottom surgeries have been normalized as if they're not sterilizing savage procedures with too many debilitating complications, pain, and woes to count. But before you know it, they're normalizing eunuchs and nulo surgeries, creating bodies that appear neither male or female. We can't get used to all this. It's just gender-affirming surgery, nothing to see here. That's the goal, so they go, can go further to the next deviant thing and the next. Too many believe this is all about compassion, respect, and rights. That's a cover. The goal has always been the breakdown of norms, to push the limits further and further. How does the endpoint look? That's the point, there is no endpoint. The thrill is in pushing beyond the acceptable. 
consider the casualties. Imagine the life of Richie, who was mentioned earlier. He says, I dream often that I have both sets of genitals. In the dream, I'm distressed. I have both. Why both, I think? I tell myself to wake up because I know it's not just a dream. And I awaken into a living nightmare. In those moments of amnesia, as I would wake, I would reach down to my crotch area expecting something there that was there for three decades, and it's not. The surgeons that maimed and disfigured Richie and so many others were not only allowed to do it, they were encouraged to do so. They placed the patient in the driver's seat, no matter how mentally ill, no matter how young. A text from Jake. He overdosed and was admitted to a psych unit. I'm so tired of it all, he writes. I'm not a man or a woman. I don't see a way forward. The answer is, or the answer to how do you make a vagina is simple. You don't. The best surgeon in the world can't make a vagina. Only God can make a vagina. And the sooner everyone recognizes that truth, the better. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at healinglives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Life Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage.